Have you ever thought about what God's desire is for your life? So I want you to think about this because from creation, the reason God created mankind has not changed. God wants us to be free, fruitful, faithful, and full of felicity. I just wanted to keep the alliteration. Felicity being happiness, joy. The disciples, as they were walking with Jesus, felt that freedom, that fruitfulness, that faithfulness. They were with Jesus, and they felt that felicity, that joy. So many Christians are not living in the fullness God intends. But Jesus said that he came to give us life and that more abundantly. But too many believers are under the mistaken impression that the only way to please God is by trying to keep the law. And sometimes there are a lot of themselves are doing rituals and, and rules. And like the Pharisees, they think the law is doable, that they can actually obtain a good or right standing with God if they can only keep the law. But you know, when we, I always know when I'm becoming a law keeper, because I get very judgmental of others, because misery loves company. And when I'm under the law, I want to bring everybody under the law. And when I see someone having that fruitfulness and that freedom, full of felicitation, I, I, I'm, I get a little jealous because here I am. You know, it's like when you're, you're cleaning the house and everybody else is, you know, watching a sitcom or they're watching football. You know, you're like, um, I wish I could watch football, but somebody has to do the dishes from the nachos. You know, it's just the way it goes. But Jesus, Jesus wants us to live in this freedom. Paul had a sharp rebuke for the Galatians because after receiving grace, the grace of salvation through Jesus Christ, they were returning to the law. So in Galatians 4.21, Paul says, you who are trying to fulfill the law, who are living under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear the cursings of the law? Cursed is everyone who does not constantly live according to the law. In other words, Paul is saying, you who are trying to live by under, find your approval, find your identity by what rituals you follow or how closely you adhere to the rules. You have no idea how high, hard, and holy the law really is. Now, I am a natural born law keeper. I I love to keep the law as long as I know about it. Sometimes I don't know and I break it accidentally, but never intentionally, never intentionally. We were at this hotel and they told us, make sure you get your armbands before you go in the pool. So I said, okay, sir, I will get our armbands. So I go, Brian's like, let's go to the pool. I'm like, I will go get the armbands because we don't need armbands. Yes, we do. Because the guy said, get my armbands. So I go to the front desk and I said, I'm here for the armbands and I need five because you know, it's my husband and I and my son and his two boys are coming. And the lady says, I can only give you four. The fifth one's going to cost you money. I said, but we're staying here at the hotel and we're here for four days. And she said, they are $10, but I'll give it to you today because you said you didn't know. I mean, like power hungry over these bands. So she gives me the band um, and I go out and I said, Brian, I can't go in the pool because 
I, I really, I got this one for free and I'm not feeling good about it. He goes, just put it on and get in the pool with your grandsons and your son. So I'm in the pool just feeling guilt. Like this one just, you know, it costs somebody else. Nobody else is wearing armbands. Nobody. And nobody's checking on the armbands. We're the only people in the pool with armbands. So the next day, it's just my two grandsons who are coming. So I go back to get the armbands. And Brian goes, Cheryl, seriously? I'm armbands, you know? So I go back and I said, I need four armbands. She looks at me and she goes, I dealt with you yesterday. And you tried to get that free armband. And I said, wait, you mean I was supposed to keep yesterday's armbands? And she's like, no. I said, so I need new armbands. And she said, yes. And I said, and you said four, right? And she said, yes. And I said, I told my son he couldn't go swimming because you said only four. So it's my husband and I and my two grandsons. I said, that's four. I said, I'm a rule keeper. I, I do rules. I'm really good at rules. I, you, I'm trying to obey and please you, but it's not working for either of us. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry. Here's your four bands. I went out there. We're the only people in the pool wearing those armbands again. You, I, I really do. I mean, if there's a rule, I'm the type that reads all the rules. I read the instruction manuals. And I follow them. I, you do, I'm a rule keeper by nature. But you know, then you come to those rules that you didn't know you broke. Or you come to the rules that are just so hard or so high or so holy that you can't obtain to it. And that's what the law is. Paul says in Galatians, going back again to Galatians, that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. It was to protect us, to keep us from ourselves until that which was perfect was come, until the righteousness of Jesus Christ could be in us. You know, I, I was a tough, I like to think I was a tough mom. I don't know what they'd say. Don't ask but I remember, you know, I was, I was a rule. I was on them, you know, with my daughters, with my sons, because I knew that they weren't safe, that they would make stupid decisions. And they did. And I had to be there to protect them. But, you know, I know the day that each one of them came to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit took over. Mainly because the Holy Spirit said, I'm taking over. Stop it. But other than that, I, there was a difference It was no longer me telling them what to do. It was from their heart because the Holy Spirit was ruling in them. And you see, when that which is perfect, Jesus Christ rules in us. He fulfills, he has fulfilled the law outside and he comes and he fulfills the law inside. In Jeremiah 33, it says that God says, I'm going to do a new covenant, not like the old covenant, which they broke, but my new covenant, I'm going to write my law upon their hearts. How does he do that? Through Jesus Christ living in us. We are going to see that the law is so heavy we can't do it. Again, it's higher, it's harder, and it's holier than we've ever realized. Beginning in Luke chapter 6, you see these disciples of Jesus. And you know what? They are having a great time. Because they're with Jesus. And what we see in these first two stories in Luke chapter 6 is this incredible freedom as they are simply with Jesus. They're no longer under the law. They are fulfilling the purposes of the law. 
So they're in the grain fields. We find them in the grain fields, rubbing the grains. They're just having a great time being with Jesus. And they're plucking the, the kernels from the stalks, rubbing it in their hands, and they're popping it in their mouth, and they're just following Jesus. Almost an unawareness of where they are and what they're doing and what the day is. When all of a sudden the Pharisees, because they're under the law and they're so miserable, they, they live to only judge and disqualify believers. That's what they're doing. All they're doing is we shout at. And this is what they, they're harvesting. They're winnowing and they're harvesting. I mean, t- talk about taking it to the next level. And that's what critiquers, that's what law keepers always try to do. They always try to take it to the next level. That's what they're doing. And Jesus goes back to the very purpose of the Sabbath when he says that David was in the temple and ate of the showbread, showing that the Sabbath was about helping and preserving man. Again, the law was to preserve man from himself. And so here's the law, because men do not naturally take a rest. They don't take a day off. So God brings this day off and makes it a requirement of the law, a day of rest. And what do the law keepers do? They turn the day of rest into an oppressive and accusatory thing, a way to critique dismiss and disqualify others. That's what they do with the law. They're using it not to qualify, but to disqualify, not to give rest, but to oppress. In fact, the Pharisees had taken the law about the Sabbath and turned it into something over 150 different commandments to the point where if you were a, if you were a seamstress and you accidentally left a needle, you know, in your in your blouse because you, you know, did the pin there so you could remember it later, but you forgot about that and walked out in it. You were bearing a burden and you could be arrested and tried. Is that what the Sabbath was meant for? No, it was to give man rest and pleasure, to get him with his family so he would sit down and women would sit down so they wouldn't have to cook and clean, but just have this day of rest. But this is what the law keepers had turned it into. And they accused the disciples. And then Jesus points to the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see the Sabbath again. Jesus is that rest that we find ourselves in. When we are in Christ, we have entered into that Sabbath rest where we're resting from our works. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who has the right to say how it's observed And how it's not observed. Only Jesus has that right. In the next scene, Luke 6, 6 through 11, it takes place in the synagogue. Again, the critiquers are there and it's a setup. It's a setup. They know this about Jesus, that he cannot resist need. So what do they do? They bring a man in with a withered hand. Isn't that terrible? See, they don't care about this man with a withered hand. In fact, they don't care about his healing. They have brought him in to use this man in his deformity against Jesus. But don't you just love Jesus? Because we're told in Mark 3, 5, that Jesus looked around and he was angry with them and grieved because of their hardness of heart. Because they had taken the lies, Paul said, which is good. 
But because I am sold under sin and they had corrupted it and taken it so far away from the essence, which was to safeguard, to protect, and they were using it as a hammer, an oppressor, and a disqualifier. Jesus knows their thoughts. He's totally unintimidated. Don't you love that Jesus never stops being Jesus? Don't you love it? Just because there's people criticizing, just because there are people that want to catch me and goes, well, you know, I probably won't use those words. No, he's still Jesus. Yesterday, today, and forever the same. You cannot intimidate him. You cannot stop him. Jesus is the same. And Jesus takes the Sabbath back to what it's intended to be. It's intended to be a blessing, a safeguard, and health for men. And so he says, I will ask you one thing in verse 9. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Again, that which was good and for the preservation of man, to give him a rest, They had taken it and made it a requirement. See, the law is for man, not man. For the law, the Sabbath was made for man's good, not man made for the good of the Sabbath. And looking around at them all, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But listen to this. Here are the law keepers, those who think they can do the law. They are filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Look at the fruit. Filled with rage. Law keepers filled with rage, trying to disqualify, trying to destroy. Angry. Because this is the end of where trying to be a law keeper, when you're trying to do it yourself and not looking to Jesus Christ, will leave you. In verses 12 through 20, we're told that Jesus prays all night with the Father. Here's this time of fellowship with the Father. And during their discourse during the evening, they're they're talking about who out of the hundreds that are following Jesus should be pulled out to be Jesus' very special disciples and apostles, or the ones Jesus would give his authority to, to send out the leaders, so to speak. Now, we read Jesus prayed all night and we think, wow, that could be laborious. But you know, a conversation is not laborious. As I told you, we had a three-hour drive from Phoenix to Williams, Arizona, and it went by like that. And you know why? And the drive back went just as quickly because we were talking the whole time. Because I was with people I absolutely love. And we had more subjects to cover than we could get done in three hours. In fact, we would start story A and in between do B, D, E, F, G. Not finish those either. And then have to finish A. It was just, oh, it was, it was conversation in staccato. It was so awesome. That's how it is when Jesus was conversing with the Father. They were talking and they are in such a rapturous love relationship. And they adore each other so much that the conversation went so quickly. 
It, you know, when I talk to my daughter who lives in New York, we have to say, okay, we're hanging up on the count of three. Because if one of us says one other thing, that will send us for another hour, hour and a half. And we have to literally break conversation. Because it's so, oh, it just feels so good. You know, I mean, I, I could think of a thousand things. And, you know, I remember spending two weeks with her. At the end of two weeks, I started um, texting her a message about how proud I was of her, of how much I loved her. And I'm crying as I'm writing this text. (laughs) And then she calls and she's like, are you all right? I'm like, no, I'm sending you a text. And she goes, have I done something wrong? I'm like, no, I'm just so proud of you. You're just the neatest young woman. I adore you. You know, and you're a good mother. Yeah, I could barely get it out. I'm just going to send the text, hon. And then I hang up. I realize I wiped it out. Darn. But, you know, the conversation was, was extraordinary and divine, and they couldn't talk enough. That's what prayer is meant to be. It's to be fellowship and conversant with our Father that just absolutely adores us. As we sang the tender mercies, in the dead of night, that you love me and you're pleased with me and that I'm never alone. That's the type of conversation we're to have in prayer. So Jesus goes to this mountain. He continues all night. And he came and called the 12 from the multitude of followers. These were special ambassadors to be sent out. In Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, It tells us Jesus' purpose in their choosing. Why did he choose these 12? He chose, number one, that they might be with him. Just to be with him. To be in his presence. Very personal. Secondly, that they might preach his message. That he might give them authority to preach. And finally, that they might receive his power. When Jesus is calling us into fellowship with him, when he's drawing us closer, it's number one, that he might be with us. Number two, that we might receive his authority to preach, to speak about him and that we might receive his power. As we look at these men, we see three things to note. One, they're ordinary. They're ordinary men. Secondly, that Jesus chooses ordinary people. Secondly, that they're from diverse backgrounds. There are fishermen, tax collectors, and there's a zealot. Don't you love that? What are you doing in there, a zealot? But there's these diverse backgrounds. Thirdly, they were imperfect. Jesus has a nickname, according to Mark, for John and James. He calls them the sons of thunder. Either they're temperamental or their father is. I'm not quite sure. Peter, he names Rocky. Hey, Rocky. Simon, God hears, he changes his name to Rocky. Matthew, his name was first Levi, and God changes it to Matthew, gift from God. There was even a traitor among them. They were imperfect. Jesus then took his apostles and had them stand with him on a level place in verse 17. Not above the rest. But among, and now, they are accessible, they are reachable by this throng that has come to see and hear and be healed by Jesus. 
And we're told it's a great multitude, diseased. They're from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which would mean it would include Gentiles. And then we're told that Jesus healed all who needed healing, all who came to him, all who were laid at his feet. He healed them all. And now as Jesus has this multitude's attention, he's got his disciples' attention. He looks at the disciples and I believe that he's conveying a message to the disciples, first of all, that I want you to understand the people that we're after. I want you to understand the essence of the law. Now, Jesus, we're told, he says it actually in Matthew chapter five, he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus is going to give us, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to give us the essence of the law that God gave. And as we look at this law, and again, it's not a replacement. It is a clarification of the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. He is going to show us and the disciples and those there that it is higher and harder and holier than we ever realized. In Isaiah 42, verse 21, God said that he would exalt his law and make it honorable through the Messiah. And what we see here, because the law had become corrupted, these Pharisees thought they were doing it by adding their 600 commandments to it, that they were going above and beyond, is that they're going to see that no one, no one is living according to the law. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way and God laid on him our sin. We are going to see that there is none righteous, no, not one. So first of all, what we see is how much higher the law is. Verses 20 through 26, 35 through 41. The law is higher in that it contains divine blessings and divine curses. The blessings and the curses or the woes are so different than men would imagine. I mean, this goes against the way we think and no doubt the way the disciples thought. In Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The way God chooses, what God's looking for is so different. We find that God is looking for those in need and those who are willing to defer their gratification till heaven. And what we see is that God blesses the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, the excluded, the reviled, whose names are cast out as evil. Now, if somebody was filling out an application for a job and they put, well, I'm poor and I'm hungry and I'm really depressed, I'm hated, I'm excluded, I'm reviled. Uh, my name is, don't mention my name around those people. Do you think you'd hire them? Are those the people you're looking to hire in your business? Like, oh, you're just what we're looking for. And yet Jesus says, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the dissatisfied of this world. 
I'm looking for those who said, I'll never have all that I want in this world, that I'm still needy. In other words, like David, who say, thy loving kindness is better than life. I'd rather be with Jesus. I had a friend, she was really wealthy in high school, and she drove a Mercedes Benz, a 450 SL, whatever they were. I think it was like a 650 then or something. You know, only seated two, but there'd be like 20 of us that would pile in with the top down and go to three jack-in-the-box. So fun. But I remember she put a bumper sticker on her car. It said, I'd rather be with Jesus. And she was speeding down the freeway and the highway patrolman pulled her over and said, honey, you will be with Jesus if you keep driving like that. But this has to do with need. God is looking for those who are needy, who are dissatisfied with this world. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Spain and um, speak at a women's conference. And while I was there, I went to a ministry called Battelle. They invited um, Jasmine and I to go and to be a part of it. And Battelle is a ministry for drug addicts. And every pastor of the Battelle churches, and I think there's somewhere around 20 or 25 all throughout Spain, used to be a drug addict. And most of them are HIV positive because of their drugs. But the um, leader of Battelle, um, Elias, was telling us, that when they came to Spain and they were trying to share the gospel with people, it was only the drug addicts that were open to the gospel. And they were trying to do it to the educated. He himself has uh, two degrees, one from Harvard. And they were trying to, you know, do the, uh, you know, to the, um, the, the educated, the, the, you know, middle class, all these, and they weren't interested in it. But the drug addicts were coming in droves saying, please help us. Please tell us we're interested. Can he really save me? And they're the ones who responded and were saved and transformed by the gospel. In fact, Batel in Madrid, the church in Madrid, Spain, we were talking to the pastor, Paki, and his wife. And he was telling us about a tunnel that he used to live in that uh, connects to um, different streets in Spain. You can go through this tunnel that he and his wife used to live in this tunnel with a blanket over them while they did heroin. And when he was going to negotiate to buy the property where Batel of Madrid is, that he's in a three-piece suit and he's walking with a man in a three-piece suit and they happened to travel through that tunnel before they made their negotiations. And he looked over and he started crying. Because he remembered what he was. And he was looking at himself now, negotiating with a bank manager for property for a church and realizing how much God had done for him. Remember how Jesus said it's not the, the righteous, the, the healthy that need a savior. It's those who are in need who realize they need a savior. That's why they're blessed. Because they realize they need a savior. And the law is higher because the blessings are high blessings. The blessings come from the kingdom of God itself. In other words, the poor who can't get anything out of this life. The poor, as it says in James, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Those who are Christians who do not have money in this life. 
What they have is God answers their prayer, direct access. The kingdom of God is open to them. Those who are hungry will be filled. Mary in the Magnificat, as you remember, she said he has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away hungry. Joy. Joy is waiting for us. It's not that we've hit the pinnacle and everything is downhill from there. No, joy is yet to come. Fullness of joy in his presence. Rejoicing, heavenly reward, and association with the great prophets. Association with the prophets. That they would say about us who feel the need, who our treasures are in heaven, not on this earth. That it would be said they're just like the prophets. Interesting. You know, we, we were doing this question and answer in Arizona. And they're like, who's your favorite Bible character? And I was thinking, the woman next to me said Paul. I'm like, oh, I like Paul. But I like David. I'm thinking about these different people that I really like Peter too. And I'm thinking about all these different ones. And, and I said, do you know, I, I like these. I said, but you know. I feel like I have walked with Peter's and Paul's. Like a prophet is without honor in his own country. We as the body of Christ, we don't honor each other like we're supposed to honor each other. In fact, the author of Hebrews said, esteem those who teach you the word and watch out for you very highly. We don't do that. And I was thinking about all the people that have spoken into my life. It's interesting because the camp or the conference center that I was speaking was actually bought in the first building erected by my Aunt Isi. And I was thinking, wow, my Aunt Isi, I got to walk with her. I wonder if when we get to heaven, she'll be right up there with Ruth and with Esther and these godly women. But our names are also inscribed in the book of life. Do you realize that? Your name through Jesus Christ is in the book of life. The story of Cheryl. Cheryl meets Brian. I mean, it's in the book of life. It's coming. It's coming, that fulfillment. But then it pronounces woe, cursing, shame, no productivity upon the rich. Those who have all their blessings in this life, in this life, everything they're ever going to get is right now in this life. The fulfilled, those who are satisfied with the earth, the complacent, those who have all they need from this life, the laughers or the mockers, the people are like, "Ah, you're walking with Jesus. Look at us partying, having such a great time. The popular, those who all men speak well of. Oh, we want everyone to speak well of, but Jesus is saying that's not the best scenario or situation for your life. The essence of the woes is is higher because it's, it's saying already have received the best you'll ever have. And all that awaits is hunger, mourning, and deception. The law is also higher because it deals with our emotions. In verse 27, 35, and 37, it's, it deals with who we love, who we judge, who we condemn. And in verse 45, it tells us that the abundance of our heart, which is revealed by our words, speaks about the treasury. It's 
It's higher because it, it's, it's dealing with our emotions. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. But now the law is harder because it requires what is not humanly possible. Do you realize that? I mean, if you look at this and go, "Mm, check, check, check. You're either a liar, deceived, or delusional. But if you look at this and go, "Uh uh uh-oh, guilty. Oh, then you got it. Then you're getting it. Then you understand it. If you put your hands on it and say, oh, God, help me. I'm a ruined sinner. Then you've got it. Or if you say, Jesus, I need you so desperately. Do in me what I cannot do for myself. Then you've got it. Because the law is higher. Years ago, I had this interesting conversation. I was talking to this person about the importance of truth and pointing out that they had an issue with lying. And they they said to me, lying's not a problem. You're just in the Old Testament, Cheryl. I said, do you think only the Old Testament tells you not to lie? And I said, do you think that the law isn't in force? I said, the law is more in force in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews said, if the law that was given by angels, you know, proved to cause death, how much more the law that has come through the very Son of God? The law is harder, verses 27 through 38, because it requires that we love our enemies. Love, that is the word agape. If you want a great definition of agape, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me review this to you so you'll all feel condemned. This is the love that suffers long, is kind, does not envy. Like, let's just say never envies. Does not parade itself like, look, I'm loving. Is not puffed up like, wow, I really was so good at loving just now. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Oh my goodness. Not seeking its own. I always seek my own. I don't want to, but I do. It's a good picture if I look good and it's a bad picture if I don't look good. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter if you all look good and I look bad. It's like my eyes are closed. We can't use this one. I don't want to be like that. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. When you hear a report, you don't believe it. You don't think evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Ah, they fell down. I knew I was better. But rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Has faith in others. Believes the best about you. Hopes all things. I hope that's not true. Endures all things and never fails. This is the agape that Jesus is saying we're to have towards our enemies. Enemies. You know, this is all like wonderful and very romantic until you have to practice it. Until you have an enemy. Until you have a person who purposely plays the music full blast next door. Or gets a drum set in the room closest to yours. You know, it's all sounds great until you have to put it into practice. Jesus said that we're to love those who hurt, want to destroy, slander, malign, plot against us. 
that we are to bless and do good to those who curse us, pray for those who spitefully use us. And it's not that we just do good to them. It's that we constantly do good, that we offer the other cheek to those who spite us. Now, if you can read that and go, oh, yes, oh, yes, something's wrong with you. Seriously, if somebody slaps you, what do you want to do? Thank you. I'm so glad you're human. You want to slap them back a little harder so that their head kind of turns. Give our tunic to the one who takes our coat. That's like telling a thief who took your purse, wait, you forgot my credit card. In verse 31, that we treat everyone else just as we want to be treated. You know, to, that means consideration, doesn't it? How can I, how can I, if I, if this was me, if this enemy was me and I was acting like this, what would I want someone to do to me? How can I do that? That we are to do good and lend even to our enemies. To give to our enemies, that we are merciful, that we are forgiving, that we are constantly generous. Verse 38, that we give, pressed down, measured, pressed down. That means so we can get more in there, shaken together and running over. I mean, this is how we, this is how Jesus said, if you'll give, it'll come back to you. I mean, I think about how stingy we can be with our tithe check, you know, like 10%. I earned this, you know, and if I just hold back a little bit, we could be so stingy in our giving. So, well, how much are we going to give her for her birthday? Well, when did we go up in price of how much we give to people on their birthday? You know, we could get so stingy because we're thinking about what we want to get for ourselves. A woman once told me this story about her husband just getting all over her for spending $40 on a coat for her daughter, only to find out he had bought a brand new ski boat for himself. Isn't that us? That's us. Jesus said that we are to live by a higher standard. He said that even non-believers can be good to those who are good to them. Everyone can be good to someone who's good to them. That's not hard. But to not be rude to someone who's being rude, that's hard. To turn around and to give a blessing when someone is saying something mean to you. But it's in these times that the character of Christ is visible in us because we are doing what is humanly impossible. Because we are mirroring Christ and it becomes evident that Jesus is living in us. This is how Christ is seen. Jesus is requiring that we be like him, verse 40, who is our teacher. And the only way we can be like Jesus is to be how the disciples were with Jesus. When we are with Jesus, when we are receiving his authority and his power, we are becoming like Jesus. We are being filled with Jesus. 
in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we're told that of these disciples, when they were listening to Peter and John and they saw the boldness and the wisdom with what they spoke, with which they spoke, they took note that they had been with Jesus because they were acting like Jesus. They've been arrested. They've gotten in trouble. They're being condemned for doing good. And Peter and John are answering back kindly, respectfully, with authority and with power. And they had to take note. These men have been with Jesus. You see, it's higher and it's harder because it requires that we be like Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul said, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You see, if we're just mere men, then we don't showcase our salvation or this transformation. Jesus wants to live in us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This law, like the first law, is meant to drive us to Jesus, to say we're needy. When it comes to the standard that God has, I'm poor. I'm not laughing right now. As I look at this standard, I realize I'm hungry. I've fallen short. I'm depressed. I'm mourning because I realize there is no way that Cheryl Broderson could ever, ever do this. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. But now the law is holier than we ever realized because it's overarching requirement. The essence, the practice of the law is this agape, this love. This divine love and the only source is God. God is agape. We're told in 1 John chapter 4. God is agape. Cheryl's not agape. And no offense, you're not agape either. Only Jesus. God is agape. That's our source. It cannot be drummed up. We cannot train ourselves to be loving in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, it's this, to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, this is the summation of all the law and the prophets. But not only does this require that we love agape, that's bad enough, that's hard enough. It's not just an outward look of love, but it's a sincere internal law that governs our heart, dictates our behavior, bears good fruit. But it's also all, all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, all my soul, all the entirety. I don't know that I've ever given my entire self to anything but a bubble bath. How do you do just to give all? Because all means all. And we are so prone to blindness. Verse 39. You know, if you think you're doing this, if you think you've got this covered, you're blind and you're leading others into the same ditch. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were so blind. They were leading others and they were all falling into this ditch that they couldn't get out of because the law is higher, harder, and holier 
than anyone else can see. And what happens is when we do not see the holy aspect of the law, we condemn others over the specks while ignoring the logs in our own eyes. That's not love, is it? Agape does not inspect specks. In fact, Peter tells us that agape or agape covers a multitude of sins. Like Jesus covered our sins, covers our failures. That's what love does. And love is the essence of the law. And then love always, always bears good fruit, divine fruit, good fruit. That my heart is filled with such a good treasury that when I speak, good things come out. I look at this and I say, boy, do I need Jesus. I need Jesus to come and fill my heart and clean out the treasury of my heart. And I don't just need it one day. I need it every day because my heart is so prone to harden. Just so prone to harden. So quickly hardens. I think I told you this last week, but, you know, Brian and I were getting an argument about the car, getting the car fixed. And I said, he said, we got it fixed less than a year ago. And I go, no, it was more than a year ago. I just saw the bill yesterday. He said, you're lying. I knew I was lying. He knew I was lying. But would I say, you're right? No, I was going to pretend that it was all true. I even tried to find the bill. He comes downstairs. There's bills every place, but not that bill, of course, because God's like, you lied. I know I lied, but just don't tell Brian. And the Lord's like, he already knows. Just admit it. It's like, no, because I don't want him to think I'm a liar. But you are, because you just did. I know, but please. And I realized how quickly my heart hardens. So quickly. All of a sudden, I don't want to admit that I have the propensity to lie, even though I just lied. It's obvious to Brian. It's obvious to Jesus. I know I lied. And yet, no, I'm not telling anybody. I'm going to find a bill someplace, make it look like a car bill. Now I'm into forgery. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. To bear divine fruit. See, the gist of the law is this. When you truly understand the righteousness of God and the righteousness required to see God, you realize how far short you come and how desperately you need Jesus. And that's the time to begin to build your life on Jesus because he alone is the rock. So we build our lives on who he is and what he has done for us. If you build your life on your own self-righteousness, your own goodness, or keeping of the law, oh my goodness, the minute a storm blows through, the minute you have an enemy, whether it's the wind or the rising flood, the raging sea, your house will fall. You see, Peter thought, His self-righteousness, his resolve to follow Jesus was strong enough. Even when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he's like, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you can have nothing to do with me. Then wash my whole body. He was going to be better than everybody else. And he said, Lord, though all these would deny you, I would never deny you. Like, I'm with you. I don't trust these guys either. But I'm your man. But you know what happened? When Jesus was arrested, 
Peter was one of those who forsook Jesus. Then he goes into the courtyard of the high priest. He stands with the soldiers and he denies the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. You see, Peter realized that he was a sinner. Everything, everything he thought he was, he was not. He was not. But what did our Jesus do when he rose again? He told the women, tell Peter I'm risen. And then we're told he first, before any of the other disciples, he appeared to Caiaphas, to Peter. And then he met with them at the Sea of Galilee. Because Peter was meant to not be a Simon, not to be a Caiaphas, but to be a Peter, a rock. Because he was meant to build himself on Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done. You see, if my righteousness is all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, I don't have to fear the storm because it's not about Cheryl. It's not about Cheryl's goodness. It's not about Cheryl's righteousness. It's not about Cheryl's good deeds. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And no matter what beatings it takes or how vehemently the wind blows, the waves batter, the floods rise. When our righteousness is about Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins, his resurrection from the dead and his word and promises to us, we will survive the storms of life. Many years ago, a man um, was in an impoverished state and he said, Chuck, I need money desperately. I have this house in Hawaii. I'll sell it to you. If, if you can give me some money. So my dad paid him for this house and he got a really good deal. He got it for what this guy had um, bought it for and it was in Kauai. My dad only owned it for, uh, for a year and a huge storm blew through. My dad and mom fixed it up and they used to loan it to um, other pastors to go and stay and have a vacation there. A storm blew through and every house in the Wailea Valley where this house was, was destroyed but my parents' house. All of them, down. And so um, the mayor of that area called my dad and the governor of Hawaii personally, and they asked my dad if they could use his house as a refuge station because it was still standing. And about five or six families moved into my father's house. And so then what happened is after that storm, when they moved out, the house had been wrecked because there were so many children. So the state of Hawaii actually paid my dad to fix up the house again. So my dad was in the process of fixing it up when the man came back to my father and said, I want my house back. He had kind of demanded it back. And so my dad said, okay, I'll sell it back to you for exactly, you know, what I bought it from you. And you can just make payments to me for the little bit of equity that I put into it. Well, the man didn't make one payment to my father, not one payment, and he didn't make it to the bank. So my dad stepped in and he had to buy the house again in order to save it. Another storm blew through, and this time the house was leveled completely. All the other houses stayed, and my dad's house was leveled. All that was left was uh, the foundation of the garage. And my dad goes, well, praise the Lord. I got my insurance money out of it. (laughs) But I just thought about that so much as I was reading this. That the house built on the rock stands. Only the house built on Jesus Christ can stand. And that's what he's saying. 
If you build your life around anything else but Jesus Christ, you will not be able to weather the storms of this life. But if you build it on Jesus Christ, because you know, what do we do? In the storms, you start doing negotiation. Lord, I did this and this and this and this for you. But can you ever do enough for God? No. Do you deserve to be preserved from the storm? No. But if it's like, Jesus, you're my advocate. You've done this and this and this and this and this for me. Oh, he's our protection. He's our salvation in the storm. You don't have to try to perform the law because you can't. It's higher, harder, and holier than you ever realized. And if you think you can, you're blind, you're deceived, you're going to be ditched. But Jesus has done it all for us. So what is the need of this hour? What does this chapter leave us with? It leaves us with needing Jesus. Needing Jesus. Unlike these disciples, to be with Jesus, to receive from Jesus his authority, his word. Jesus has done it all. And when we are with Jesus, we know we're close to Jesus. We know we're in the presence of Jesus when we feel his freedom, his fruitfulness, his faithfulness, his felicity, and we have fellowship with the Father through Jesus. The disciples were enjoying themselves because they walked in Jesus' presence. They were not under the law, but under grace because they were with Jesus. Jesus wants to bring us out from under the law and into the freedom of that grace, which is found in Jesus Christ. Today, the law is too high for you. It's too hard for you. It's too holy for you. So Jesus paid it all because only Jesus could that you might have again that freedom, that fruitfulness, that faithfulness, that felicity that only Jesus can give. Let's stand up. There will be women up front to pray with you. Maybe you've been living under the law. Maybe even as you were doing your lesson this week, you're like, okay, I need to be more loving. I need to be more giving. I need, I need, I need. No, you just need Jesus. You just need Jesus. Let's close our eyes and I'm going to pray. But as I begin to pray, keeping your eyes closed, if you've been trying to live under the law, if you've been very performance oriented, and you have been feeling like a failure and not measuring up. If that's you, will you raise your hand? Because I want to put you under grace. Okay, dear sisters, dear sisters. Lord, I pray for my dear sisters. Will you show them the grace? Lord, that expensive grace that you brought to them. That grace, Lord, that only you can give. That grace that you freely bestow on us, even as you've promised that of your fullness we have all received in grace after grace. Lord, may we put down the performance and just simply be filled with Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you respond to need. Lord, just like the man with the withered hand, you wouldn't let anyone stop you from helping him. And all he had to do was be in your presence with a withered hand. 
and he received your attention. He received your defense. He received your healing. He received your blessing. Lord, may we not be afraid to come into your presence with our withered hands, but know that only in your presence will our withered hands be made whole. Only in your presence will we be defended. Only in your presence, Lord, may we find that freedom, that fruitfulness, that faithfulness, and that felicity that only comes through you. Set us free by the grace that is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.